Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's start. I think the first thing Mike and I want to talk about is the Federal Reserve balance sheet. Because I know, I think we covered this last Wednesday. We have both convinced that the Federal Reserve, because it's so late, because at the very least this time last year, stopped buying treasury bonds and mortgage bonds. And they're it's just inconceivable to the two of us, which means it'll probably happen, but it's inconceivable to the two of us that they will vary from their program when they announce, I guess, at the next meeting that they're going to go into runoff. And runoff, I've seen articles. I apologize to everyone on the phone. I don't read the Fed Minute. And I mean, maybe I should, but I... I just read articles about it, but at least two articles uh, about the Fed Minute, they actually said, estimated what the rundown per month would be, $95 billion, which I recall was about a third mortgage debt and two-thirds U.S. Treasury. Now, how would you calculate it? I mean, how would you estimate that? Well, they have a portfolio, so they know when the interest coupons are coming. And they know when maturities are coming. And I guess they, you know, probably have some reporting system where they, you know, they can they tell the Fed staff or the head staff can, can be briefed and the, the governors can be briefed if they just don't reinvest the proceeds. How much is it, is it per month? And I think they said $95 billion. Well, Think of it, $95 billion over 12 months is like a trillion two, so maybe a trillion 150 or something. So what does that mean? Again, it's not a place where I have expertise. I'm just passing on things I've read. I think the excess reserves in our banking system have been running about $2 trillion. And what does excess reserves mean? That means the Reserves that the various banks don't need. So they put them on deposit back with the Fed. And I think it's the case that to encourage them to do that, you make a, a small interest rate, maybe the Fed funds rate on those reserves. So it may not be that much of an impact. It may simply be that the Fed overdid it. So the, the banking system has these excess reserves and to tell them that, you know, it takes a better part of two years at $95 billion a month uh, draw, uh, runoff to get the uh, to a normal system where there would be extra reserves, excess reserves on deposit with the Fed. So maybe it won't make that much difference. But we I don't know that anyone knows that, including, you know, Fed, Federal Reserve staffers who do this all day, every day. And Michael was saying earlier when we talked that 
maybe they'll vary that. In other words, maybe each bed meeting they'll decide to, well, conditions look a little tight. So let's reduce the runoff to 50, 50 billion a month. I, anything could happen, I guess, but if you look at the speeches, this is the time when Fed officials, governors can make speeches when they get closer to a uh, meeting where they're going to talk about raising the funds, Fed funds rate or what they're going to do with the runoff. They have to climb up almost like a public company where the management stops talking to analysts the week before the uh, earnings release just to make sure there's no, 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 no information passed with someone that isn't available to everyone. So I forget exactly when the next Fed meeting is. I think it's sometime in May. But I suspect that when they go into runoff, even if the stock market goes down or there seems to be some amount of, you know, either foreign borrowers or U.S. borrowers unable to roll their debt, you know, the kinds of things that happen where the Fed goes to the rescue, I kind of think they're going to continue with the rundown, runoff, because they realize, again, with the Fed of hindsight, that they should have started this a year ago. So it's up to a consensus on the board, keep the runoff going. In in the newspaper program and, and their newspaper articles and you know, financial news networks and streaming services and whatnot, everyone always focuses whether or not the Fed funds rate is going to come up by 50 basis points in the May meeting. I think for the same reason it will. Then, then the question becomes, how many more meetings of drawing up 50 basis points rather than 25 basis points will happen? And it looks as though at least one more, maybe two more. There, I think if capital markets conditions start to look tight, you, you might see them revert to going up 25 basis points. But once again, they're behind, you know, as long as the markets are kind of disinterested in it. And you see that when they talk about the yield curve, going negative, and that being a sign of what what are what are they talking about? Well, what they're talking about is history. And the history they're talking about is when the Federal Reserve starts to try to slow the economy down by that most of the time they succeed and you get a recession. There's nothing now how does that that yield curve get inverse? Well the tree upon the one to two year maturity kind of predict where Fed funds rates are going to be. And so it quickly went up to two, two and a half percent. So you you got that very yield curve. Let's correct it a bit now. It takes quite a lot of fifty basis point increases to get there, you know, this year. So I think at least one fifty basis points in May, maybe another one after that. Even then, I mean, then the Fed funds rate will be one and a quarter percent, but still pretty darn low. So what does this mean? Well, we have stocks we want to own, right? We want to own Snowflake. We want to own Salesforce. We want to own more NVIDIA. We want to own Microsoft. Better investments if the stocks are cheaper. And so with this macro situation, and we haven't even talked about Russia and Ukraine. Better to buy, rather than even have, I would say what hedge funds call a research position. Well, what is a research position? Well, you come interested in the stock, 
and you buy like a quarter interest or something like that. So if you decide that it doesn't work after doing more more trauma financials or trying to seek other kinds of information on the company, if you've only bought 20% of your eventual position and you lose a few points on it, it's not the end of the world. If on the other hand, everything checks out and want to go forward and the stocks move higher, you know, let you have 20% of what would be a final position. So normally I would say, you know, if you find something you really like, you think it's too expensive by a half position, but I think even the macro background, probably better to do what's called a research position, like maybe 20% of what you'll find the young. And that way, if the company do all right relatively, but the overall stock market is coming down because of the macro effects of the runoff and the balance sheet, higher Fed funds rates and whatnot, then you've done the work, you've got a, they call research position, similar 20%. If the market is jumped for the runoff and high Fed funds rates, and it turns out to have been a good time to acquire stocks generally, it lets you own 20%. I mean, it's so frustrating to uh, do the work and then have the stock move up and while you've been doing the work and then decide that it had half of its move. So, and, it, and if you're investing long-term, you want it, you know, the cheaper you get into the stock, the better. So I think they, this is a time when research positions probably makes sense. I don't want to take too much more of the 30 minutes, but I'm going to cover all jet prices really very quick, and I'm going to extend it to other commodities, oil, gas, red coal, copper, everything is short, and the... In, in the oil and gas and petrol markets, which are the ones I follow hopefully, the reason I can say with confidence that things are short is because the amount of backwardation. You know, you pay $105 or something for a barrel of oil now, and in two years, the barrel of oil is worth $80. Well, that $25 of backwardation must mean, has to mean, that the current market is short. By the time you get out two years, they, you know, and you want to buy a barrel of oil to deliver two years, it's twenty-five dollars less. It makes it very difficult to hedge, and 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 so people want to run with low debt, so they don't have to hedge, and they want to try to have production growth, spending only 65 percent of their cash flow. So it's kind of lurks your circle. I mean, if enough entry, you know, public and private the upstream oil and gas business in the U.S. make this way, it could be very, very good because you have kind of an automatic governor on supply. Uh, same is true of natural gas. Natural gas, that salt much is, is, is like $3 back when it is. In other words, it's $7, and you get out three or four years, it's $4. So once again, a lot of motivation to keep that down, not to spend more than two-thirds of your cash flow, and don't hedge. And so those two businesses are pretty healthy. It's called a little bit like it, although the market for petrol out two or three years. There is a market, there are indices and whatnot, but there's nowhere near the amount of liquidity you have at all. Yeah, so it's hard to know how to trust those numbers. But at this point, you know, the what you receive from petrol, either an export sale, which gets determined on, Day that where the index is on the day that cargo's loaded. The U.S. sales are done by contract, so those aren't quite as high as the export sales. Now, I mean, to the extent that it's 
kind of strong metro pricing. Not as strong as now, but strong. We're sitting to 23. The metro companies that are all Rapid, Ramico, the others are, you know, Warrior really looking pretty cheap. But that, I think Mike and I, from an earlier conversation, would like to try to be specific in terms of what does the two favorite software companies, Salesforce and uh, what is it that they have? What do they do? And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Mike, and he's going to explain in brief, layman's terms, what Salesforce does and what Snowflake does. So I've done my 15 minutes over to you, Mike. I'm actually going to put it on mute, so you have the whole of the remaining 15 minutes to, to explain what those two companies do for their customers. Okay. Sounds like a plan. Why don't we just use an example of a company that we all know fairly well. I think most people on this call are familiar with Stargas. I don't have any real insight to their operations aside from the fact that I've been a shareholder for a long time. So, you know, some of the same things I'm going to describe the way, maybe some ways I think about the way they might think about things and where these two software applications would come into play and why the company would adopt them. So Star, Stargas has. Sargas is kind of unique because they have, it's a, basically a collection of companies and all those companies sort of run similar or you may have had a regional oil and gas distributor that Stargas would have acquired and acquired the customers and implemented the processes. And I guess starting with sales and marketing, you know, any sales team that, and in the case of Stargas, maybe they call up to the houses or they send out mailers, you have some people on that sales team that are going to be really, really good. And they're going to be excellent about following up with customers. They develop personal relationships with them. They do all these things that ultimately result in them having the best numbers of anybody on the sales team. Um, now, if you want to try to implement that person strategy across your entire sales organization, which spans multiple offices, multiple states, all of that stuff, you're talking about a relatively difficult thing to do. And then you're recruiting that top guy to kind of go around and teach his method. Then he's not selling. So there's a, there's a bunch of pieces to all this where, um, you want to try to institutionalize that knowledge of your best people, but you, um, don't want to, to you don't want it to be a drain on those people either. So the, the core functionality of a CRM, a customer relationship management system, is really just a piece of software that helps the company track and maintain relationships with its customers. And Salesforce is unique because they were the first cloud-based CRM, or at least the first one of prominence. And so I, I think my understanding is that Stargast does actually use Salesforce. So when, when Stargast acquires a new, new company, they'll implement their sales process and their sales process is probably relatively well dialed because again, they're doing it at a bunch of different locations throughout the country. So that CRM ends up being in essence, the user interface that a lot of well, all of the sales organization and that some of the other parts of the organization use as well. Finance will use it because they're coming up with target and 
expectations on next quarter's revenue. You have a bunch of different pieces all touching this, this Salesforce application. Um, over the years, Salesforce has implemented a bunch of different features that you could pay extra for that are more useful. And then there's a bunch of third-party developers that'll build you custom software to sit on top of Salesforce. So the long story short here is that once Salesforce finds its way into the organization, it tends to become permanent and it tends to, its usage it tends to expand. We'll come back to, to, to Salesforce, but I want to move to Snowflake because I think most of us understand the way CRMs work, but Snowflake is a little bit less obvious and why it's important. The funny thing about Snowflake is the work that it replaces is a lot of manual work. And I've had this in previous roles where I was responsible for building a data model that collected data from a different bunch of different parts of the business. So back to Stargas, they've got a group that's in charge of sales, a group that's in charge of marketing, a group in charge of finance, and probably an operations team, and probably some other groups beyond that. But say you've got that, those five or so silos each one of them may have a different set of data. So there may be some sort of an ERP system. There may be some sort of system for managing the assets. So think about all the trucks and the maintenance and all that stuff. There's probably some sort of a system or model for how much they're going to head for, for buying the fuel there. There's a full piece to marketing where they're probably doing some sort of digital marketing combined with traditional mailer marketing as well. And then they have a sales organization. So there's data coming off of all of those different things. As a board member start group, Salesforce, they started to use Salesforce maybe seven, eight years ago. And everything Mike has laid out has happened. It's part of a lot more than just the, the customer management. But on the Snowflake. Okay, good. Because maybe I'll, I'll lay a prediction out for the way Snowflake's going to happen or could happen at uh so, so there's all these different silos, but say somebody within Snowflake or within a uh, Stargas, I'll use a couple of examples and maybe one of them will stick. We'll find out here, but let's say finance wants to make better decisions about how much, how much heating oil to purchase and hold for a particular period of time. And today they might download a bunch of data out of Salesforce. They'll pull in some market data, they'll look at some weather forecasts for degree days, and they'll come up with some sort of a model to make that decision. They maybe, maybe with, with Salesforce or something with Snowflake, what they can do is potentially pull more data sources. So they could set up a permanent pipe that connects data from Salesforce into Snowflake. They could also connect their ERP system, which maybe tracks the amount of oil that's in the, each particular storage container, the status of that container, et cetera. It may also track all of the trucks that are, that are operating. They can pull all the data from all that stuff. So they have one central understanding of where all their fuel is. Um, and they put together this, this model essentially with its disparate data in order to make those decisions. So once, once Snowflake gets in the door in finance for that particular UK use case, Maybe sales and marketing learns about this thing that worked for finance and sales and marketing says, well, wouldn't it be cool if we could pull our Salesforce data and combine that with our two other big marketing programs, the website 
and our direct-to-consumer marketing. And if we could pull all that together, I think we could measure ROI for marketing activities in a better way. And maybe it'll enable us to do new things and new, new types of customer acquisition or retention strategies that we wouldn't otherwise have. So then they do that. So that this is how uh, Snowflake ends up with a very good net retention because you make that first sale and then next thing you know, the next group is starting to adopt some of that technology and you're spending more with them. So, so now you've got finance in, you've got sales marketing in, you've got getting a bunch of good data. In. A third area you might pull all this together would be your acquisitions team. So as we know, Stargast makes a bunch of acquisitions in various small regional heating oil distributors. We have some, I'd assume they have some models as to figure out how profitable they would be if they flip them over into, into the Stargast way of doing things. But in this case, you could probably get more granular data in order to make that decision. And there's a, there's another thing that's kind of unique to, to Snowflake is that they have third-party data feeds as well. So again, back to the degree day piece, degree days are very crude, um, measures of temperature and they do a pretty good job of measuring how much heat gets, gets used, but you could potentially buy through this, this third-party data service, far greater resolution on weather data that would enable you to make not only better decisions about acquiring a particular customer, but better predictions as to how much oil or gas you should have at a particular location or expect to be able to sell based on real-time hyper-focused weather data. So, um, so th those are just a handful of different scenarios as a way that you can use it. And hopefully that gives an understanding as to how, you know, there's a big upfront sale, like getting your foot in the door is a big step because, um, Snowflake's going to have a salesperson. They're going to have to pull an engineer in. They may have to do a little bit of education. They're going to have to take the IT team to say, okay, this is how you would connect this. And they'll say, well, we don't have anybody on staff to do it. And say, okay, well, here's a partner consultant that could probably do this project for you. And we'll help you scope the initial layer. So it, it's a very hands-on initial sale, which is why the payback period for um, a new customer for that incremental revenue generally is, well, in the case of enterprise software, it's generally longer than a year, should be shorter than two years, but it's not unusual for that to be expensive. But for certain pieces of software where it spreads through the organization very quickly, because it has a very good return on investment, it's a no-brainer. And it, back to Snowflake, the most amazing thing about it is that the net return rate is something like 170%, which means for a course of 12 months, your average company, customers spending 70% more on your product than they were in the pre-order. I'm more sold on Salesforce, but I'm taking 10Ks with me this weekend. They're both January 31 years. What I'm concerned about is that the sales effort and the R&D expense is, is part of your cost of good part of the cost to hang on to the customer and it would more properly go you know, on the cost line rather than the, you know, generate revenue line. I don't know how really to make that judgment, but I think it'll be easier to make that judgment on Salesforce because they've been at it longer. And, and, you know, we might, Mike and I can discuss whether, you know, he'll do the same thing, whether we, whether we learn anything from 
looking at the year-end data that, once again, most companies have year-end December 3-1. These two companies have a have an end-of-January year-end, typically by retail companies, not necessarily software companies, but they're 10Ks, you know, you count, you know, two and a half months, or 10Ks because they become available in the last um, of a week. So that'll be something we'll, we'll try to look, look at for next Wednesday. Mike has a good point in, in passing on ASML, Taiwan Semiconductor, and on NVIDIA. And he'll cover it more detail, but uh, these companies are having very, very, very strong results. But that, without getting into any detail, just going to turn it over to Mike to kind of close this out. The perception right now in the market seems to be that we're at peak semiconductor. What I think is really playing out is maybe we had a semi-peak in logic, but memory is coming back very strong. The other thing is, is mobile may be relatively weak, but data center is very strong. And both of these are sort of evidenced by ASML, who reported earnings this morning, and Taiwan Semiconductor, who had earnings just a few days ago. So Taiwan Semiconductor, for example, this year, 2022, will be the first year where data center is as large as or larger than mobile from a source of revenue generation. The telling piece from Taiwan Semiconductor, or sorry, from ASML is that they're selling a lot more EUV lithography systems into memory right now than they are into logic. So at least for these two companies, so long as the overlay of the different parts of the semiconductor markets aren't all aligned at the same time, the potential cycle is less extreme. And from what I can tell for all of these markets, there's still plenty of demand. It does seem like the smaller players, and that this goes for semiconductor capital equipment and any smaller fabs, smaller players are more likely to have supply constraints where the larger players tend to have the resources and the ability to influence their supply chain so that they aren't as constrained. So a bunch of different dynamics going on, but in general, we're happy with where ASML and TSMC are. Great. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, stay healthy. Be well. We'll be on next, uh, next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Big thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.